Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that I have told a hundred times, don't speak. I know just what you're saying. Here is the captain. Yeah, it's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Well, Captain, I think that we have waited long enough, haven't we? Considering that this is America's oldest brewery. This week, we are very happy to be featuring Yingling, the iconic American lager. Famous for its rich amber color and medium-bodied flavor, this is a fantastic beer that delivers well-balanced taste and distinct character. Garage grade three out of five bottle caps. And let's give some thanks and praise to our friends who have distinct character. First up, a shout out to Nick Hiller, listening and walking the dog in Irwin, Pennsylvania. And last but certainly not least, we have Lisa Alinek from Black Diamond, Alberta, Canada. Everyone we mentioned, they went to our website, truecrimegarage.com, clicked on the pint glass and helped us out with this week's beer fund, the old beer fund for the beer run. Yeah, P-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run. Want to thank everybody for leaving their comments on our YouTube videos. If you want to check out our old off the record episodes, I've been trying to release one, sometimes two a week only on YouTube. It's free. Make sure you like, make sure you subscribe. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. trends, statistics, and data is something we discuss often in the garage, most often when discussing repeat and serial offenders. The information provides insights to much of the how and why some criminals operate. Sometimes that information may help to figure out the most important part of an investigation, the who part. Serial offenders of all types of crimes tend to have and operate within their comfort zones. These comfort zones are areas that they know and feel acquainted with. They are often places that they have spent a good deal of time in before. More often than not, it is the town or city where they live in or a place that they have visited multiple times. When a serial offender is committing their crimes, the criminal wants to eliminate as many variables as possible that may lead to getting caught. As a result, they will often try and stick to a place that they are very familiar with. The benefits are obvious. They know most of the streets and back alleys. They know the best routes to take. They have a good idea of where other people are likely and unlikely to be. Depending on the type of crime one is looking to commit, they may need to know where they can likely find a victim. All of this information helps the criminal to lower the risk of being caught. It also means that they would know how to escape if something doesn't go according to plan. Committing crime is stressful, even if you are a psychopathic serial killer. This is because the possibility of being apprehended will weigh on your mind. Most serial killers have very defined geographic areas of operation. They conduct their killings within comfort zones that are often defined by an anchor point. Some examples are their place of residence, employment, or even the residence of a relative. Serial murderers will, at times, spiral their activities outside of their comfort zone when their confidence has grown through experience or to avoid detection. Very few serial murderers travel great distances or even interstate to kill. 
While you will hear the phrase in the same neighborhood throughout this week's shows, please note that while the offenses described here are not technically in the same neighborhood, should you take the time to look them up on a map, you will agree that the crimes took place terrifyingly close to the others. Warning, these episodes may take you out of your comfort zone. Sleep in peace. This is True Crime Garage. Mail carriers, postal employees, newspaper carriers. Recently, we have covered the still unsolved murder of postal worker Stephen Spina, a young man who at the age of just 36 years old was found stabbed to death in his apartment in New York. This was September 17, 2007. We covered Stephen's case in episode 642. And even more recently, we covered the very mysterious but very solvable missing persons case of Kiara Coles, a U.S. postal employee who went missing in October of 2018 in Chicago. Foul play is most certainly suspected in that case, and those were episodes 715 and 716 on your True Crime Garage radio dial. Now, those cases will always be near and dear to our hearts, like so many of the cases that we have discussed here in the garage, but with us knowing several of the fine, hardworking folks that listen to our show and that are delivering the mail to all of us, those cases will always be near and dear to our hearts, like so many of the cases we have discussed in the garage. But with us knowing several fine folks working hard getting the mail to each of us, but more importantly, we have a lot of post office workers listening to the show, a lot of mail carriers listening to the show. Not too shabby, Get some good exercise, great benefits, and you can listen to these two guys. I'm sure we have discussed this here before, but Captain, you and I, when we were younger, we both had paper routes. Now, I can think of at least two newspaper carrier cases that we have covered here in the garage. The kidnapping of paper boys Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin from Des Moines, Iowa in the early 1980s. TCG episodes 57 and 58, but all of those cases immediately came to mind when starting to examine this case, because this is the stuff of nightmares, a true story of the unthinkable. This is going to take us back to June 9th, 1993. Now, June 9th was a Wednesday. This day is going to start off with the startling disappearance of a young girl, 15-year-old Charlotte Schmoyer. She was up early that morning, like many mornings. Charlotte was a freshman at high school. She was in the ninth grade, and she was a member of the swim team and the track team and the band front. She was in the color guard swinging flags in the band. She's up early that morning because she had a neighborhood newspaper route. She was going to be out delivering papers. But the alarm was raised when those papers did not arrive on the front doorsteps of the neighborhood subscribers. Police arrived on the scene after being called to the area. When they get there, this is North Oswego Street on the east side of Allentown, Pennsylvania. This is a neighborhood that butts up against the busy Hanover Avenue, which has both housing and businesses. The Lehigh River is nearby as well. When police get to the scene, you know, they're always hoping that this is just a misunderstanding, or maybe we have a teenager that decided to shirk responsibility and go off with some friends. But here we get what you absolutely do not want to find, and that is clear and obvious signs of a likely abduction. So with police at the scene, it looks like, Captain, that this poor girl may have been abducted. So what are they seeing? What, what do they see when they arrive? It appears that Charlotte Schmoyer was out on her route delivering these papers. Now, typically, the only good thing about one of these newspaper route abductions is in most cases, it's rather obvious to police where the abduction took place. Right. 
you typically have a short window of time that you're dealing with in the investigation. So much like with the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale that we all know, the newspapers are your breadcrumb trail to the abduction site. Follow the papers, and when they stop, your neighborhood canvas investigation starts there. And like you said, now we can narrow down the window of opportunity because we also could find out when were those papers delivered to her to get the papers ready to go out for delivery. It's my understanding that in this neighborhood at this time, Captain, the police are told that typically the paper drop-off would occur right around 5 a.m. So that's going to be the start of Charlotte's day, right? She's going to collect that bundle of papers, she's going to prep them, and then she's going to start out on her route. I believe she had about 50 houses. I don't know how many subscribers were on her route. But typically, from my day, and this is strange to be reporting on this, while we do not live anywhere near Allentown, Pennsylvania, our routes, the route that I had was in the early 90s or mid 90s. And typically during the week, the route was rather quick. You could bang out the route in about anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes. And so, as said, this would seem to be a very short window of time. The problem area here, the newspaper trail. Okay, so you're going to start to canvas the area after finding the following. The newspaper trail is going to lead police to 1057 East Gordon Street. This is just 0.2 miles from Charlotte's parents' home on North Oswego Road. So I would estimate this is just like a five or six minute walk considering the circumstances. Now, Charlotte was unsuccessful in delivering a paper to 1057 East Gordon Street residents. A bit of an interesting twist here from what we have seen in similar cases. It actually appears that the neighbors are the ones that called the police. Either this is the 1057 East Gordon Street residents or someone close by. So other cases that we covered, like in the Gosh case and, and some others, the parents are notified or the newspaper is notified from persons not having received their paper. And that's where the alarm is raised. But with this situation, it's people going out looking for their paper. They don't find the paper and then they find this very scary situation. After you hear this description, you'll quickly understand that there was Certain signs of abduction. Exactly. Obvious signs. So we got 1057 East Gordon Street that we've already mentioned. They did not get their paper that morning. Charlotte had a cart that she would push or pull down the street. The cart held the newspapers. Somebody goes out looking for their paper. They don't find Charlotte. They don't find their paper. They find the cart abandoned with newspapers still in it. And you look around for a while, you wait, and you go, uh-oh, something is not right here. So when police get on the scene, we have the description of what the police saw. The police find that cart in front of this residence. They then find newspapers on the ground and the little girl's Walkman radio, headphones separated from the radio. So police find these items near the garage to this residence. From my understanding, Captain, the garage is not attached to the house. So this is near more like the backyard of this property. Right. Police find smeared fingerprints on the garage window pane. This, they're very quickly forming a picture in their minds of what they believe happened. She's out delivering the papers, headphones on, so maybe not fully aware of her surroundings, but that's very common on the paper routes. You, you slap on your headphones and you deliver your papers and you, you go on with your day. It's pretty routine stuff. But they find these headphones and it looks like there's a sign of a struggle, that somebody snatched her up. And when, while she's trying to get away, she ran toward this garage and either try to brace herself or she's trying to catch herself on this wall to the garage, smearing her fingers across going downward motion. 
And what they're saying is it, they're saying that based off of what they could see, it almost looked to them like somebody tackled her, like took her down to the ground and then left with her. And she might not have been aware of it if she's wearing headphones. She might not even heard the attack coming. Exactly. She may not have heard the person approach her, may not have seen him. We do know that there was some attempt to flee based on what they're seeing at the scene. So either he he makes a failed attempt at grabbing her and she she gets away and tries to make a run for it, or she does spot him out of the corner of her eye and starts to make a run for it. But regardless, they're seeing that it looks like she was tackled, and now we can't find this poor girl who was just out delivering her papers that day. Now, unfortunately, this is going to lead to a search, search everything in the neighborhood, and a short time later, police locate what they had hoped against. They find the victim, Charlotte Schmoyer's body. It was found close nearby under a pile of logs, stumps, leaves, like this is in a wooded area. So this is behind Moser Elementary School. This is over by the Allentown East Side Reservoir. So she's found about 10 or so feet off of a trail there. This is a, it's not a park, but you could describe it as a park-like setting. Again, it's behind the elementary school. Not being from the area, it's difficult for us to pinpoint the exact location. However, we can say confidently this is only about half of a mile from the abduction site. So the killer made some kind of lame attempt to conceal the body. The victim suffered 22 stab wounds. Sexual assault was likely due to the state of her clothing. This is a vicious, brutal murder stabbed that many times and no indication that the murder weapon was recovered at the body recovery site. But like in so many of these cases, we need investigators to catch a break. We need the investigation to have a little bit of luck on their side. And they do seem to catch a bit of a break here, Captain. This is because they get a witness that may have seen Charlotte Schmoyer's killer driving away from the East Side Reservoir. This would be at about 6.30 a.m. So we remember we talked about the paper bundle drop-off would be about 5 a.m. And we do not know the exact time that police were called to the area, but that time, that, that window of time, this is 90 minutes from the time that the papers would have been dropped off to the time that we have this witness that is saying, look, I think I, I saw somebody leaving that area in a car right? and police are going, Oh, that's where the, the body, that's where we located the body. So this, this is not going to be an area where you you would expect a lot of traffic at that hour. A lot of people coming and going at that hour. And the witness is saying, this is the only person that I saw driving from that area and they're going, okay, this very likely is the killer, is the person that we are looking for. So to be clear, this is not an eyewitness to the abduction or to the assault. If only, you know, if we had that, you wish for that because someone likely could have stepped in and prevented this murder from taking place in the first place. Right. So this is about the time the investigators say the Allentown newspaper carrier was stabbed 22 times. So sometime between just before 6:30. What they get is a vehicle description and a good one. Now a description of the driver not so much, not a great one. In right, fact, like we've always said, it's easier to find a car than it is to find a person. In fact, the driver was described as quote it looked like Mr. Average. The witness described the driver as white and middle-aged with no distinguishing characteristics. Authorities did tell the papers that the witness was confident that they could identify the man and the car. Now, we'll get into the vehicle description here in a minute, but to be clear on this here, Captain, what this witness is stating is while the driver looked like Mr. Average to me, and here's a description of the vehicle, they're not saying that I, I could tell you the person's name or exactly what kind of car and year it was. They're saying, if you present me 
with cars or images of cars and images of, of suspects. Right. I'm confident as the witness that I could pick out the suspect and pick out the car. So back to that vehicle captain, because as we said, we, we get a much better description of the killer's vehicle. The eyewitness described the car as a late 1970s or early 1980s medium blue color four door subcompact car with heavy damage to the passenger side. And I love to hear that there is damage to this vehicle. This damage, as described by the witness, heavy damage to the passenger side. Look, you may find it's 1993. You may find in this neighborhood or surrounding areas a lot of cars that could match the description of late 70s, early 80s, medium blue, four-door subcompact car. But you likely should only find one with heavy damage to the passenger side. This is very specific. This is an identifier. This is this is something that is unique to this vehicle only. Right. Vehicles are easier to find than people most of the time. Now, the Allentown assistant police chief, he would go on to say that they believe that the car was likely a Chrysler product and that the police... They, they know exactly what we're thinking as well here, Captain, because they spent the entire night after finding Charlotte, driving around and on foot looking for that vehicle, a vehicle that matched that description. You find a vehicle that matches that description, you're probably going to find your guy. Well, the day after this murder, law enforcement is going to reach out and talk to the public. The assistant police chief is going to address the media. The assistant police chief, his name is Gerald Monahan. So the day after the murder, he's up front and center on the local news. He's saying that the police would like to question the driver about why he was at the reservoir at that early hour and what he might have seen in the wooded area behind Moser School in East Allentown. So this is a tactic that we've seen before. While police are working under the idea that this guy, whoever who was whoever was driving that vehicle at 6.30 a.m. on June 9th, 1993, at the reservoir behind the school there, that's our guy. That's our suspect. That's what they're working on. Right. But the tactic here is you want to you don't want to be so aggressive when you're delivering this information to the public because you want this person to come to you. It's a lot easier if they come to you and try to explain why they were there. You know, they're saying, we want to see, we want to know what you may have seen or heard while you were out there. You could be a witness to something important. The other thing too, is if, if you deliver the message in this way as well, you may have somebody that knows this person that might come forward with with this kind of tactic rather than saying, this is our suspect. This is the guy that we're looking for, especially this early on in your investigation. We're talking, this is 24 hours later. A reward was quickly offered up. This came by the way of the good folks over at the morning call newspaper. A lot of the information that we have from this particular portion of the case comes from the morning call newspaper. Sadly, that was the newspaper that Charlotte Schmoyer was delivering that day. Yeah. Very she was sad. a carrier for the morning call. A reward of $10,000 was being offered up for the individual or individuals who could provide specific information resulting in the detection, arrest, and conviction of the person or persons responsible for the murder of Charlotte. The information sought by this offer must be communicated to the Allentown Police Department, the reward offer reads. All calls will be kept confidential. The reward will be given by the morning call after the conviction of the person or persons responsible for, for this crime and after consultation with Allentown Police Department and other appropriate law enforcement authorities. Now, I'll limit, I want to limit the amount of autopsy information here out of respect to our young victim. Some of what was revealed We've already talked about you have the 22 stab wounds. Most of them were located in the back to her back. 
Coroner Wayne Snyder said the cause of death was these multiple stab wounds. One incredibly sad part of the autopsy and a sad fact of the attack is that Charlotte, who was just five foot two inches tall, she did not have any defense wounds. The assistant police chief later said he, meaning her attacker, had complete control over her. She never had the opportunity to fight back. Well, look, it's pretty simple to say. I think he attacked her from behind. And like like we said, if you are carrying, and she might have been, some of these carrying cases, you, you put the majority of your papers in the front. Mm-hmm. So when you go to be attacked, then you fall forward anyways. And to me, the way they describe the scene, it's almost like she probably attempted to abandon the paper she was carrying. Right. At some point to help her get away. Now, the as far as the Walkman and the headphones go, I can't say if those came off during the course of her being tackled, taken to the ground, or if she tried to abandon those as well. But like the police are saying, no defense wounds. She didn't even have the opportunity to fight back. Whoever tackled her and took her to the ground, that may have been enough to subdue her and make it easier for them to leave that area with her. We also don't know how far the attack went before the attacker and, and left the, that area before going off to this reservoir area. Right. Authorities would not discuss whether the teen was sexually assaulted, although the autopsy did give some indication that that was probably likely. The girl was found with the pants and sweatshirt, the clothing that she was wearing when she disappeared. But investigators would not say publicly if she was clothed when she was found. Some additional notes and statements from police. They are telling the public we've interviewed witnesses and we're looking at particular individuals. It may be somebody who is familiar with Charlotte. They go on to say the nature of the offense requires us to look at people who live in the neighborhood. One of the first things to be checked and ruled out was that someone had escaped from or did not return from leave from the Allentown State Hospital. This is an interesting and unique aspect to this case. The Allentown State Hospital is located adjacent to the Schmoyer's family's home. This was a state hospital captain that moved into the area, I would say a couple years, I don't have the exact date, a couple years before this murder, but this was a hospital that there was a lot of pushback from the neighborhood. They did not want the the hospital there. And this is not a, an emergency room type hospital or a place where people were giving birth. This was a hospital for persons that had some mental issues. So this person, some persons of the neighborhood did not want this in their backyard. We can see this clearly because when this murder takes place, the police are saying, this is one of the first things that we have to check. Did somebody get out of this hospital? Did they escape or, or were they allowed to leave, which many of the patients were, and did they not come back? And if we can get, we're going to look for, we're checking with the hospital. And if we can find that person that didn't come back, if we can find that person that may have escaped from the, the, for lack of a better term, mental hospital, then we might have suspect number one here. you filthy animals we are back back in the garage cheers to everybody cheers to you captain and cheers to all of our longtime listeners there's so many of you and if you're listening for the first time you get a tiny little cheers as well mayor joseph de donna 
this is what you want to hear. Okay. You're, you are a member of the neighborhood concerned citizen. Your heart is broken. Your heart is breaking for this girl's family, but this is what you want to hear. You want, you want to hear that there's going to be decisive action taken. And we have the mayor, Joseph Dodonna, up front and center the day after the murder. He is announcing to everyone that he has authorized the Allentown Police Department to take whatever actions are necessary, regardless of cost, to track down the killer and protect the city from further attack. Neighbors along East Gordon Street said that they saw undercover police keep watch overnight. So remember the day that Charlotte is abducted and found is a Wednesday. The neighbors, the people living on this East Gordon Street, they are saying that they saw undercover police keeping watch overnight on that Wednesday night. This makes total sense because this would go along with the statement that we heard earlier, police saying that they were out looking for that car all night long. Right. And there's a possibility because we know that killers sometimes like to return to the scene of the crime. Also, this neighborhood is probably in tremendous fear that this is going to happen again. And also, could you imagine all the young paper boys and paper girls that have to then continue their routes after hearing this in the news? The other thing we learn is that officers were up at the crack of dawn to pound on doors of the neighbors. This is inconvenient for the people living in the neighborhood, but it's necessary to your investigation and very smart. So remember, newspaper bundle dropped off at 5 a.m., Guess what our police are out doing at 5 a.m. The next day, we are out knocking on doors, waking people up because what they want to do is by the, by the time they're canvassing the area, Captain, unfortunately, the poor girl's already been killed. Right. Body has already been attempted to be concealed after they find her and they're canvassing the area. A lot of the people that may have seen something or heard something, maybe somebody witnessed something that they don't know is important to this case. Those people were likely not talked to on that Wednesday because they had already made their way off to work and they were gone. So you're up now, you're knocking on doors, you're asking the important questions. This is very smart for their investigation and really covering all their bases here. Now, the park where Charlotte's body was found was closed for somewhere between 48 hours and 72 hours so that police and authorities could search for and collect evidence. Now, these undercover officers, back to that, as you had mentioned, right, sometimes these killers will return to the area, maybe even return here with the news breaking very quickly that the bodies found. You wouldn't anticipate that the killer would go back to the trail area where he had left the body. He's not going to do that, but he may drive by, do a little drive-by action, a little snooping to see what's going on. Well, and also the age of the victim, we know you got to look at the family, you got to look at the inner circle. But then I think this becomes more complicated because every person that she delivered to is a possible suspect. Anybody that she doesn't deliver to, anybody just on her route I think if I'm law enforcement, I'm leaning to, towards the idea that this is local. Yeah, there. I think there's some indicators here that this could be a very local-based crime. So I'm. I would bet. Right. We talked about undercover officers earlier. Right. I'm guessing that they're not only out there looking for the car, but they're probably posting up undercovers, staking out for drivers or a person's driving by, especially the morning after and the morning after that. I, I bet they did do that, having seen the efforts that they went to in this investigation. Charlotte Schmoyer was a hometown girl. She was born in Allentown. She's the daughter of Jean and Karen Schmoyer. She was living at home with mom, dad, and her brother and sister. She was a member of the Emmanuel United Church of Christ and a member of the youth group there as well. 
For her funeral service, the family requested that supporters and mourners send a contribution to a scholarship fund at Charlotte's school instead of flowers. Contributions were sent to the school in care of Charlotte. Of course, when word spread, hundreds of students in the Allentown School District struggled to cope with losing Charlotte. One school official termed the death the hardest-hitting tragedy in at least the last dozen years. So, I mean, at schools, and in this particular case, the school district, over the years, of course, they have to cope with student deaths from things like illnesses, even suicides and car accidents. But a murder of a beloved student classmate, this is going to prove to be most disturbing. Well, on top of that, it's a vicious murder. And I'm sure there's rumors getting out to the public. I'm sure there's a lot of speculation. And and it's almost like she was attacked by this animal, this vicious animal. Some mystery monster that's lurking in the neighborhood. Yeah, the boogeyman. So this will give you a little kind of hint into what's going on here. So one school official said, quote, there's a different level of concern. There's a threat here that wasn't there in other tragic deaths. And the nature of the tragedy is unusual in that it affected a whole neighborhood, end quote. So what they did, Captain, as one might expect, they brought in extra counselors and school psychologists brought in and sent out to four area schools to assist and to help the students and and staff. Now, keep in mind the area, the neighborhood. Charlotte was well past the age of attending elementary school, but her body was found on a wooded hillside behind the elementary school. In the four schools, staff members were briefed on the death based on the newspaper accounts. Teams of professionals went from classroom to classroom at the elementary schools, dispelling rumors and taking children's questions. Some of the children required one-on-one counseling. The school district really did a great job with this, I think, Captain. They even they even set up a phone number for people to call who needed any kind of help with this, or where can I find help? This is the number you can call, and we'll, we'll tell you what to, what to do. Right. The district arranged for meetings for parents to discuss special safety precautions for their children. Teachers and staff tried to combat children's fears by telling them how to keep themselves safe. Some of the points made were don't walk alone. Don't take shortcuts through the woods or other isolated areas and report any suspicious individual to a responsible adult. The schools requested that, if possible, parents please drop children off and pick them up. They they really didn't want anybody walking to and from school. And as you pointed out, Captain, the kids were understandably sad, angry, but also afraid. Yeah. One of the kids told a newspaper, "This is a this is a, a person." Charlotte was a ninth grader. All of those elementary school kids that probably didn't know her, her, her brother and sister were considerably younger than her. So maybe they knew her younger siblings. Right. So they have that to deal with, but we were all young once we were all elementary school age. Thank God. Nobody ever found, they never found a victim in behind the school, uh, an element. These are young kids. These kids have got to be terrified. Well, then that's how urban legends start. So then once this body is found, all the rumors, all the stories, you got kids spending the night at other kids' houses making up horror stories about what they actually found or, or, or claiming, oh, my brother saw the body before they discovered the body. Just nonsense, stuff like that. And one of the kids, this is a junior at her high school, said, quote, if it happened to her, it could happen to anybody. So the kids, everybody's scared at this point. Now, back to the investigation cabinet, I want to jump back to something the assistant chief said, I know we touched on this a bit, but they said the nature of the offense requires us to look at people who live in the neighborhood. Of course you would anytime you have something like this, but each case is unique. And the thing that stands out here is all aspects of the crimes took place in the neighborhood, the attack, the abduction, the body disposal, 
Here and now, more importantly than ever, the nature of the offense requires police to look at people who live in that neighborhood. And not only do you look at the people who live in the neighborhood to find a potential suspect, right. but of course you're looking at everyone who is a potential eye or ear witness here. So if this attack, this murder, this sexual assault, this abduction, this disposal of the body, if that's not horrifying enough for this community, well, this isn't the first time. And there's one pretty recently, as recent as 10 months before this murder. Yeah. So one thing we always try to look at and, and something that police are always going to look at are crime trends, which is certainly a thing that you hone in on. But when you talk about crime trends, you're really looking and talking about property crimes. And this is also true for robberies and, and assaults. But here, Captain, as you pointed out, one does not have to look very hard and examine the recent history of this very safe neighborhood to make a discovery and for police to quickly remember and draw parallels between this assault and murder to one that took place just 10 months prior. That is 29-year-old Joan Mary Berghardt, who was found murdered on her living room floor 10 months earlier to the day. Charlotte Schmoyer, who we just talked about at length, assaulted and killed June 9th, 1993. Joan Burghardt was found assaulted and killed August 9th, 1992. So this is from the Morning Call newspaper. From the northwest corner of Allentown State Hospital grounds out at South Oswego and East Gordon Streets, it's about a hundred steps to the home of murder victim Charlotte Schmoyer. Wow. In that same 100 steps, you can walk west to the front door of the apartment rented by Joan Mary Burghardt, whose brutal bludgeoning murder, August 1992, remained unsolved. So if you're law enforcement, a couple of things, <laughs> their mind went to this murder that happened 10 months earlier, probably before anybody else. And then you start thinking, are these connected? And then you have a problem on your hand because you already have you already have a a community that's scared to death of this boogeyman. But if you lead on to the idea that these could be con connected, then I think threat level goes up to threat level midnight. Well, and while I, I like that description that was from the Morning Call newspaper, I don't think that it because really all they're referencing there is here's the, it's 100 steps from this, this state hospital to one murder victim's home. And then it's 100 steps to the other direction from the state hospital to the other murder victim's home. Well, one of the victims was not killed in their home. You only have one that was killed in their home. Right. We have Charlotte who was walking away from her house. You know, she lived, she actually lived much closer to the state hospital than where she was abducted from. Right. But the thing here is everything is in this neighborhood. Everything is in this neighborhood that both of the murders, the, the place that they're honing in on is this hospital. It's in the neighborhood as well. And of course her newspaper route all in the neighborhood. So the abduction site where she lived and then eventually where her body is found. The alarming thing here, once you hone in on this idea that, oh, we have two murders, two very violent murders, one that has been unsolved for 10 months, all taking place in the same neighborhood. The terrifying thing here, and it's obvious for the persons living in the neighborhood, of course, but having reviewed a lot of these cases, what we've seen is when crimes take place like this, these murders take place in such a close proximity that usually these types of crimes are going to speed up in succession. So the last murder took place 10 months ago. You can almost, if you're law enforcement, expect 
another attack or another victim sooner than 10 months. That would be a scary opposition to be facing, waking up every day. That's your job. Your job is now you have two murders that you have to solve, and you have to try to solve them to prevent another murder that possibly, most likely, statistically, statistically we know will happen sooner than a 10-month period. Well, and then we get the district attorney. His name is Robert Steinberg. He's talking to the media. He says, look, I'm, I'm being a little careful here about connecting the two murders. He doesn't want to set off panic among Eastside Allentown residents because he says we don't have at this time, we don't have concrete evidence that the two murders are in fact linked. But he does say, on the other hand, police are pursuing leads along those lines. Investigators remained mum on whether or not either victim was sexually assaulted. Even though what we do learn from the local media was that forensic evidence was collected to determine if that was the case. In the murder prior, in the Burghardt murder, testing was had been actually completed prior to the second murder. But police were not going to reveal the results, of course. Now, several people that were interviewed in connection with the first murder, they're talking to the media, and they say, look, during the questioning, it came up that the victim was raped in the first case. So basing it off of the questions that persons are being asked, right? You can make that leap very quickly. They did go on to say, this was interesting, that DNA testing was performed on samples taken from Joan, the first victim, and there was a man suspected in her murder, but that suspect was then cleared as the comparison results returned negative. But at this time, this early in the second investigation, Captain, basically what we're getting is police saying, we are conducting tests to try to, we're performing tests to try to determine whether there is one killer in the two murders or two killers. And we get a quote here from the district attorney. It says, quote, I need the DNA comparisons to see if I'm looking at one murderer or two. Of course, that's going to completely change your investigation if you know that it's one or two different persons. He goes on to say that the FBI, who was brought in on this, agreed to expedite the test, and the results were expected in four to six weeks. And I don't want to stay on this for too much longer, Captain, but I can't really hit it home enough. Only the people that live in this area would completely understand or even remember. But again, it's repeated time and time again in this investigation that the local scuttlebutt was that a lot of people thought that the killings were not only connected, but related to the controversial housing. Remember that that hospital had moved in and a lot of people in the neighborhood did not want that hospital there. Right. And so you get all of these people that are being interviewed in the neighborhood and they, they keep bringing up this hospital. Well, they need to check the hospital. The police need to check the hospital. And police did say, this is something that we are in fact doing without going through it too much. What we do need to say here is that eventually what we would learn is that the state hospital lead that was immediately considered in the investigation and both investigations separately and then together we end up having the district attorney who would come out at some point and say, look, everybody in the area, you need to understand we've looked into that lead and we can say with confidence that no hospital patients were involved in either of the killings. So we have a lot of details on the second case. Do we have more details on the first murder? We do have some here, Captain. So again, this goes back to August 9th, 1992. Oddly enough, 10 months to the day before the second murder. The way that this story starts off, we have 
Gladys Burghardt, she's unable to reach her daughter, Joan, by way of telephone. And she says this is actually more than one day. For two days, she can't get a hold of her. Then her and her husband learn that their daughter, Joan, did not show up for her work, did not show up at her job. Joan Burghardt, the victim, is 29 years old, and she's a nurse's aide. So mom and dad decide to drive out to their adult daughter's apartment. When they arrive, the Burghards see police cars and onlookers that are gathering around. They're gathering around their daughter's first floor apartment. So immediately they say, we knew something was terribly wrong. Then they quickly figure out and are told that their daughter was found dead lying on her living room floor. She had been hit on the head more than 30 times with an unknown object. This is according to police. Her body was found partially clothed. She was killed. Here we have the opposite. With the Charlotte Schmoyer case, we have a very short, small window of time that we're looking at in our investigation. Unfortunately, in the Berghardt case, it's not the same. Police, they're really not, if they were able to narrow it down, they'd never said so publicly because they're simply saying we, she had to have been killed sometime between Friday and Sunday when she was discovered. In one case, you have a window of maybe a couple hours. This one, you got a few days. And they're stating this based off of everybody that they talked to. So they know that Joan was alive and well on Friday because she spoke to several people and interacted with several persons. In fact, she even made plans with one of her friends for the following week on that Friday. And then we do know that her mom and dad are not able to get a hold of her on Saturday. Uh, she doesn't show up for her work, which was very unlike her. And it's Sunday around noon when she's found. Now, there's some other unique things about the first case, this, this Joan case. Because only five days before her body's found, so this is just the week prior, Joan reported a burglary at her home. And her parents would say that what was reported was that about $50 in cash was missing from her apartment. Police did say, look, we, we're aware of the burglary, and we cannot say with any level of certainty that the break-in was connected to the slaying at all. But what's weird here is what we do know is within the course of five or six days, somebody broke into the home stealing cash. And then later somebody breaks into the home and kills this young woman. Makes you wonder if it's the same individual and if it was just an escalation of crime. And this Joan, I mean, the, the, the paper carrier, the newspaper carrier, Charlotte, her young age and, and, having the experience of being a newspaper carrier myself, of course, I mean, that, that one really got to me, but Joan's case really got to me as well. I mean, this was a very incredible young woman. She was 29 years old. She was generous with her time. She was loving and she was a, a, a fighter, a true fighter. So Joan sadly struggled for years with severe depression. And this likely, I think I'm no doctor here, but she suffered a violent trauma as a youngster. And I got to believe that a lot of that depression and some of her, I hate to use the phrase mental issues, but for lack of a better term, I think probably stemmed from that violent trauma that she experienced when she was young she was very accomplished in her life. She excelled in school. She won a statewide spelling bee. She won an essay contest. She graduated with honors from Palmerton high school in 1980, where she ran track and was a member of several clubs there, including the school's newspaper. Again, she battled this depression for a large portion of her life. And, and her parents point out a large portion of her adult life. And she would regularly seek help and assistance for this. The trauma came from a situation when she was walking to the local pool when she was 10 years old. Someone sexually assaulted her at knife point. 
a stranger. And I don't believe that this person was ever apprehended for this incident. Well, and to think that one, this would be a huge ordeal just to try to get through, but to then have the knowledge that the person wasn't caught. You'd always have that fear that they're going to come back for you. Well, and she unfortunately had the mindset that, and, and some victims experience this where they, they can t- tend to blame themselves sometimes. Right. And even at that young age of 10, she's assaulted by a stranger at knife point, And she's worried that she had committed some kind of sin. And her parents did the best they could to try to help and assist her with this. But as said, she she did go on to excel in school, but the the problem was she was withdrawn and shy. And then, of course, the depression sets in. Her mom does say, "Look, we this was kind of always a family secret, and we didn't not something that we wanted it to be a secret." But Joan didn't talk about this. She didn't openly talk about this, and she didn't like to talk about the incident. Yeah, it seems like this horrific attack happened to her and then she closed people off and then she dove into something that she felt safe in education and her education and schoolwork and you have a lot of time on your hands because i'm sure she didn't want to go out especially by herself i'm sure she had what a what a horrible thing well and her mom says you know look so if anybody out there thought that she was withdrawn or shy now you know why you know that this this is now coming to light and joan goes on to earn an associate's degree from the community college they say the troubles were really over the course of about a seven-year period of her adult life while in her 20s she joan was in and out of hospitals at times Her parents said after her death that they questioned whether the medication and some of the psychiatric counseling Joan received early on may have done more harm than good. But in the year before the murder, Joan became a she became certified as a nurse's aide. And at the time of her death, she was employed at the Moser nursing home. Friends and family remembered how Joan would stop at the nursing home on her days off to play piano for the residents. The apartments where she lived, this is the Gordon Street apartments. This is, this is where the attack took place. Very few. She was one of the few tenants there that, that had a car. So she would go out of her way and often would drive other tenants to places like the bank or the grocery store. So this is a caring, giving person. And I'm sorry, I I just had a hard time thinking about how sad it was. Here you have this individual that experienced this horrible trauma at the hands of a stranger at at the young age of 10. She had every excuse to be miserable or every excuse to be in the bottle. And instead, she was a fighter, a giver, someone who helped others. And then one night, someone crawls into her apartment and kills her. And it's this this brutal murder. While your heart breaks for Joan and her family and Charlotte and her family and friends and, and the neighborhood and the schools, your heart's breaking. And the whole time, you're racking your brain going, are these connected? Could these cases be connected? And if so, who could do such a thing? to thank everybody for joining us here in the garage for everything true crime check out truecrimegarage.com and while you're there sign up on the mailing list this week we'll be sending out a bonus promo code so you can go to the true crime garage store and you'll get a little sale price a little garage sale join us for part two and until then you be good be kind